listening to Cam FM on 97.2 FM, and this is The Actual Rock Show, the only show on air dedicated solely to geological fun, fails, and flights of fancy. I'm Hero Bane, they them, a part three student in the Cambridge Department of Earth Sciences. Each week I am joined on the show by a different fellow student. This week we welcome Dylan. Would you like to introduce yourself for the listeners? So, uh, hi, I'm uh, Dylan. I use uh, he, they pronouns. Um, I am at uh, Downing College at Cambridge and I'm currently um, in, I'm, I'm doing part two, so that's my third year. Um, yeah, I'm 20 and I've been, yeah, I like earth sciences quite a bit. Um, <laughs> I guess that's my introduction. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much sums me up. <laughs> fabulous, fabulous. Um, so... Let's start at the very beginning. Famously, a very good place to start. Um, well, it was thirteen point did... seven billion years ago. <laughs> not that beginning. <laughs> also, not the one that was at four point six billion years ago. <laughs> um, I'm expecting one that happened less than twenty years ago, <laughs> um, but um, but more than two minutes ago. Okay, <laughs> so. Um, when did you realise that earth science was something that you wanted to do? Um, what was it that made you go, yes, this is cool, I like this? <laughs> um, so it was actually fairly recently. So um, when I entered Cambridge, I actually uh, came in thinking I was going to do physics all the way through. Um, you know, go into academia, get a PhD, you know, all that fun stuff. Um, but... When entering the Natural Sciences Tripos, you have to pick three modules. Um, now, see, in my A-levels, I only did maths, further maths and physics. So I had quite a limited kind of scope that I could choose from. I couldn't really choose any of the biological sciences or chemistry or psychology or anything like that. Um, so the things that were available to me were physics, material science and earth sciences. Um and I, I was happy with that selection. Material sciences and earth sciences, they were entirely new things to me. They had kind of little assumed knowledge and they mixed in some really interesting parts of physics and chemistry and, and biology um, as well. So, so it just seemed like a really good way to that I could sink my teeth into some subjects that were unfamiliar to me um, without being just completely lost in a void of, oh my God, what the hell is a covalent bond? Um <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um but throughout my throughout my first year I really enjoyed Earth Sciences more than I expected to. I thought it was just going to be rocks, but it's so much more than that. It's cool rocks. It's <laughs> how rocks are made, how, what rocks can tell us about the past, how we can you, you know, you you feel a bit like a detective saying, "Well, let's look at these little olivines and Oh, but like they, they've got this rimming on them, so that means it's been spent tonight. Oh, it's so it feels so. I mean, in a very nerdy way, but it's really cool. <laughs> um, Being the Sherlock Holmes of rocks. Yeah. <laughs> follow the trail. Get to the answer. Yeah, Sherlock Holmes, if you will. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah. So so after that, I dropped physics and I continued on with earth sciences because it just took you know it it, it took hold of me it, it was it was something that I really wanted to learn more about um but I, I I must admit it isn't my sole focus so um during second year I continued uh doing a optional maths module 
because I really like maths as well, um, which I think is something that I share with few people in the Earth Sciences Department. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and I also continued on with material science during my second year, because um, that, that had lots of crossover with Earth Sciences on the kind of crystallography font. Uh, there was lots of that kind of detective work as well. If you could look at a piece of metal and say, well, this is likely how it was made. Less through cataclysmic seismic events, but more through um, it was made in a wax mould. But still, it was the same, <laughs> you know, similar principles. Um, yeah. And actually, uh, recently in, in third year, I decided to pick up um, a really interesting module in history and philosophy of science. Um just so I could get as kind of as wide uh, a breadth of topics as I could, just because I I do like learning and I <laughs> and I like to know stuff, and so being a I mean that that's one of the great things about Cambridge is that I am able to l take l these loads of really different subjects and see where the similarities are and just get to know anything I want to really, which I'm so happy about. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm. I totally agree with that. If I hadn't come to Cambridge, I would never have ended up in earth sciences. Yeah. I'm really pleased that I got this opportunity. It gave, yeah, um, it gave us the opportunity to figure things out and see what we do like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's really great. Um, so, earth sciences <laughs> is obviously a very broad subject. You have yeah. actually spoken about that specifically. <laughs> um, so, within it, what are some of your particular interests? Um, so, I, I ironically for. Earth sciences. I very much like the extraterrestrial stuff. <laughs> um, um, I mean, w when I when I came into Cambridge, uh, you know, I wanted to go down physics, but I wanted to specifically go down the astrophysics rabbit hole. I really like space. I think it's a really fantastic and curious and kind of scary place. <laughs> um, and as much as I gained a love for earth sciences, I'd never lost that. Uh, love for astrophysics so in earth sciences we do get to explore other worlds and you know we, we talk a lot about mars um, and venus as you know our two nearest uh neighbors but even beyond that um you know there are people in the department that work on exoplanets so planets that orbit around other stars thousands of you know light years away um and they they, they use really sensitive telescopes to see just exactly how much their star is wobbling. So, they, you know, because you can't actually look at them directly. So you have to use all these indirect approaches. And it's a really, in, I mean, it, it just shows the ingenuity of, of, of scientists, really, that they are using such little data and getting so much out of it. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think, um, yeah, I mean, the discovery of, of, of exoplanets and kind of the discussion around them... Um, I, I, it's just so in, engaging because like we, we use all these different facets of facets of the subject, you know, from geophysics to climatology to mineralogy to da, 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 da. We use them all to try and build up a picture of this world from scratch because we can't directly observe it. So we have to use all these kind of other you know, um, kind of preliminary stages to figure out what we're looking at and what it could look like which i i mean it's it's really it's literally world building right <laughs> it's a, yeah. it's very creative and it's very um 
yeah, it, 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 it's just wonderful. I, I, I really like the, um, yeah, exoplanets in specific. You've made it sound really exciting. <laughs> um, it is exciting. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure all the listeners are going to understand that and are going to want to go and study exoplanets now. <laughs> um. <laughs> Fieldwork fun. So a big part of earth sciences is going out into the natural world and studying it, measuring it, drawing it and hitting it with hammers. <laughs> In short, fieldwork. However, fieldwork is really plain sailing and it has full of ups and downs and occasional unexpected sideways. In this show, we like to take a look at some of these moments, starting with fieldwork fun. What is your most fun or best fieldwork moment? Um, so I, I think my favourite moment in fieldwork was when we were um, we were in the southwest of England um, for our second year uh, field trip. And um, we were at this place called uh, Keats Quarry. And we got the chance to look at some dinosaur footprints. Which, I mean, just on the surface, excuse the pun, is very interesting. <laughs> um, but like, like, they... But you... you, you Honestly, if I saw what I saw, I would have no idea what I was looking at. I would definitely not think dinosaur footprints. They were just kind of these little, Blops. I say little, quite big dents um, in the rock that I suppose if you had an aerial view would look quite evenly spaced. But yeah, it, it was at first it just seemed like, huh, isn't that weird? And you could just walk on none the wiser. But um, we had... Dave Norman with us on the field trip. Now, Dave Norman is a fantastic, you know, world-renowned paleontologist. Um, and he could explain to us, and we got to discuss with him what these were. And it turns out they were likely brachiosaur footprints. Um, and in fact, so I, I had to do this um, a few weeks ago, um, but I found some uh, 3D models of those exact footprints online. Um, oh, and if you, wow. yeah, it's so cool. I'll send you them afterwards. <laughs> go on the face. If anyone is listening, yeah. go on the Facebook page. There will be a link to this <laughs> on the Facebook page. Yeah. Um, yeah, you, you can look at these studio models just, just in your web browser as well. It doesn't require any specialist um, software. Um, and in them, you can see around the edges of these big footprints, you see smaller divots kind of on the circumference, which. Some scientists have said they're baby footprints. They're footprints of baby dinosaurs? Yeah, following in the footsteps of their mums and their dads. That's the most adorable thing I've ever yeah, heard. right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, I just, yeah, I, I love the fact that with this, you know, quite... I mean, again, you know, in a similar way to the astrophysics stuff is that you can use such limited data, data which looks really kind of innocuous at first and use it to build up a really detailed picture of what is happening or what has happened. So using these, you know, relatively mundane dents in the stone, um, we can figure out, well, just how big these dinosaurs were, how heavy they were how long their legs are because we can figure that out by you know how differently spaced um all the footprints are yeah. we can even figure out quite specific mechanics of how they're able to support such immense weights so for example with sauropods it's now widely agreed on that they probably had sort of like elastic cushions in their feet 
so that when they stepped down, it spread out and stored a lot of energy um, so that when they tried to step up again, it kind of bounced back like, like a rubber ball to preserve energy. So they, so it was much more efficient um, ways of locomotion. And the reason we think that is because elephants nowadays do the same and they have very similar kind of um, bone structures. And it's also the fact that we see these footprints as really round rather than, you know, with toe imprints or claw imprints mm-hmm. uh, that we suspect yeah. this kind of spreading out um, mechanics. But I mean, just, just the fact that we can talk about that from these, yeah. I, I think that's really cool. We get to learn such interesting things about these features. And also just the fact that these things exist, even if we couldn't f- find out anything from them, just the fact that footprints made over, a you know, 100 million years ago, 200 million years, whatever, um yeah are here right in front of me a dinosaur did mm-hmm. step here yeah that is <laughs> really so cool. really just i mean it leaves me in awe and i'm so glad i got to experience that on on one of our field trips yeah this reminds me of my favorite one of my favorite experiments about dinosaur footprints that i ever heard of was where they got chickens to walk through like a like a tray of poppy seeds and then they were some of the poppy seeds that like were replaced with metal or something and then they imaged how the poppy seeds moved so they could model how chickens made footprints because chickens are obviously quite similar to dinosaurs yeah. and then, so they were looking at then how the dinosaurs made their footprints like it's sort of looking at the depth and how they deformed the sediment around them which also <laughs> i thought was hilarious the idea that you're videoing a chicken running through a pot of poppy seeds <laughs> Um, I mean, the chickens must have been having a blast, right? <laughs> yeah, it sounds great. Um, this yeah. is also like the person who won the Ig Nobel Prize for sticking plasticine tails onto chicks in order to model how theropod dinosaurs would have moved. Yeah. Um, I dinosaur mean, science is wild. It, it, it's amazing. <laughs> Applied paleontology just seems like the funnest field to be in. <laughs> I found it out. The fundamental cornerstone of all sciences is testing hypotheses by collecting and analysing data. Uh, to reflect this, I mean, a lot of things that the science students in the university do is um, research and research projects. Um, and so what I want to know is about what you've been doing in your research project. Um, so before we jump in, can you give me a one-line description of your project as if you were explaining it to a child? Okay, um, so I'm trying to figure out why the Earth and Mars seem to be really warm and wet in the past, despite the sun being um, a lot colder and dimmer. Make sure you check out our Facebook page for images that will be accompanying this um, this discussion. So this is something, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is something which people call the faint young sun paradox. Is Am I right? Yeah, exactly. Okay, cool. So um, let's expand on what... (laughs) It's actually a great description. You've done a great job of describing it, but let's expand maybe a bit more on what that actually means. So um, about four billion years ago, um, we have evidence that there was quite a lot of liquid water on the surface of Earth and Mars. Um, So, for example, with Earth, we have some really old rocks which have little bits of water in them that we found, I think, in Australia. Some really old um, zircons. Zircon is a crystal. And then we also have evidence of life back four billion years ago, which would be really hard to do without abundant water. 
Um, and on Mars, we see kind of formations which look like they should have been formed by rivers or large bodies of water. Mm-hmm. Um, however, we also use our our models of the evolution of stars. So some really well understood um, things called stellar dynamics. Um, and we find out that back then, the sun should have been like about, I think it's 30 to 40% cooler. I mean, not cooler, but colder um, <laughs> than it is now, which should mean that Earth and Mars were, you know, frozen and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. completely yeah. iced over. So the question I'm the question I'm trying to answer um, by looking at all the research, not all of it, that's a lot of research, but a lot of the research that science scientists have uh, done on this problem is how can these two things both be true at the same time? Um, so how can the, our sun be cold um, back then? And how can our planets also be warm at the same time? Very interesting. So what have you been doing in order to try to answer this question? Um, so as it's a, it's, it's a critical literature review, I'm not doing any experimentation or data gathering um, myself. Um, so what I'm doing instead is I'm looking over a lot of the research um, in the field that over the past 70 years, really, because this problem is uh, quite uh, old. So Carl Sagan, um, the famous scientist, um, I-, I can't believe that I get to read his papers. It's great. Um, <laughs> he uh, kind of talked about this problem. He-, he was he was like the first person to bring it up in a big capacity in the scientific community. Um, and that was in uh, the early 70s, I believe. So yeah, it, it's quite an old problem. Um, and so I'm I'm looking at all the research from then, from before then, about how we, und- you know, about why they thought this was a problem in the first place, which of course relies on preceding um, research. And I'm trying to gather all up, see what scientists say on support or against the arguments people make for why this happens. So for example, um, a lot of people, uh, the kind of general consensus, it seems, is that there was a different composition to the atmosphere back then. There was maybe some okay. additional greenhouse gases that made it better at trapping heat. So even though we're getting less sunlight, it was trapped more effectively. Um, but there are some really wild theories as well that say, well, what if the sun just wasn't colder? <laughs> um, which is it's really bizarre because as, as part of that requires the sun to have shed, I think, about... Uh, five Jupiters worth of mass over the past four billion years, which I'm saying just the the sun got smaller and smaller over yeah, that time. Yeah, so so we, we no no one's contesting that the sun was uh that the sun is getting hotter, <clears throat> but yes, the heat of a star is really closely related to its mass and really sensitive to its yeah. mass. So if the sun was slightly bigger in the past, even if the yeah relative energy output was low, there's more mm-hmm. energy being output, so it balances out. And some scientists did some study said, well, if it's losing mass at this rate, then it will kind of perfectly align with uh, the kind of temperatures we uh, deduce were on the surface over, um, over the past four billion years. Um, but, I mean, it has some problems, but all, all theories have their problems, and it's my job in this literature review to kind of figure out what everyone's saying and what things have merit and what things don't and come to my own conclusions based on all my reading about what I think happened. That sounds really interesting. Um, Yeah. (laughs) 
Cool. So, um, what have you been practically doing day to day? I assume mostly reading? Yeah. Um, oh, actually, so it is supposed to be mostly reading, but about half the time, it's me trying to find some really old papers that were written on typewriters in the 60s <sighs> that are in some really obscure journal or just maybe don't exist online because they haven't been digitized. Um, so, yeah, I, I do spend uh, like a considerable amount of time going down rabbit holes, trying to search for, uh, you know, obscure journals. I mean, I've done... I, I mean, I've done more research into how to find the articles that I have done on my actual subject. I'll be honest. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, and so, and I think the biggest lesson I've learned is just when to give up. <laughs> is when to say, I just, I would not find this article. I might as well find some maybe more modern evidence for and against. You know, because I mean, it will have better data almost yeah. invariably. Yeah. Um. But it's it's also nice to get the original source to see why people thought this was a problem in the first place. So I'm lucky that I've been able to find some um, of them, so like some of the most relevant ones I've been finding because they are big papers, they are being digitised. But yeah, the more obscure papers are, are I mean, they're lost to time, which is unfortunate because I assume they're very interesting. <laughs> well... I don't know. So you've probably read more old papers than me, but when I tend to look at sort of papers from like 1910 or something, they seem mostly impenetrable and full of like long words that seem excessive. Um, it's like someone's trying to show off that they've read the entire dictionary. Yeah. Um, I've not read papers that... I think the oldest paper I read was from 53. Yeah, it was uh, okay. written on a typewriter. Um, it was also really poorly digitised. So you oh. can't... So you can't search through it. The text is just a picture. It isn't like the only thing. It's the same with most or yeah, most old which papers. means I can't control F to find the relevant stuff. <laughs> oh, which is the 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 worst thing you can <laughs> that can happen. Control F is a very important thing when you're trying to read an incredibly is, long paper. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Right. Thank you. That's really interesting. Um, I hope I, I hope so, yeah. that has a. I hope you come to some interesting conclusions <laughs> when you finish with that. Geological groove of the week. halfway through the show so now it's time for the geological groove of the week in this section we get our guests to share a song or piece of music which reminds them in some way of earth sciences so dylan what is your geological groove and why have you chosen it so um mine is i would walk 500 miles by the reclaimers <laughs> um <laughs> which isn't very geologically themed I, um but it is sung by Scottish people, and Scotland has some really interesting geology. But the main reason I I, I chose it is that um, on on our field trip to the southwest of England, I remember a bunch of us singing it um, to get through the intense amount of uphill walking we were doing. <laughs> um, well, like we we didn't actually know anything beyond the first verse and chorus, but we like we didn't need to. Just shouting, "I would walk five hundred miles" was enough to energize you and to get you power walking and like struggling through those last you know few <laughs> meters of ascent. 
Yeah, no, I definitely, definitely walking <laughs> songs are very important yeah. um, in geology. These boots are made for walking would also be a great one. Um... <laughs> I think all the walking songs I know are very obscure and no one would ever have heard of them, so... <laughs> I know there some are, about yeah, there are not many walking songs in the mainstream. <laughs> no, no, the one I know is a song about word. Um, <laughs> I don't think it is... Has a, I don't think it's even recorded as a song. It's just a thing that people <laughs> sing. But that is an excellent song and a very good reason to choose it. So let's have a listen. Welcome back to the Actual Rock Show on Cam FM 97.2 FM. That was 500 Miles by the Proclaimers. And now we get back to talking to Dylan about his... Um, Geology things. <laughs> um, <laughs> I worded that poorly, yeah. but it's too late now. My favourite things. scientists are famous for having rock collections and asking each other such questions as what is your favourite rock? And so, adhering rigidly to that stereotype in this section, I ask our guests for some of their geological favourites. Starting with, what is your favourite rock? Um, so my favourite rock are things called uh, palisites. These are really gorgeous rocks, primarily composed of this uh, mineral called olivine. So you get really large crystals of this, kind of nestled in a metallic matrix, um, which is usually uh, like an iron-nickel um, alloy. And the, and the reason I like them is, A, they look gorgeous, as I'm sure you'll put pictures of on the Facebook page. You will see, they are beautiful. <laughs> um, but their origin as well, and where they come from as well, is also one of the reasons why I find them amazing. So um, these are rocks that are thought to be from the, uh, the core mantle boundary, of um, large asteroids or planetoids that were then um, kind of destroyed or, or, or heavily damaged by an impact, which threw these rocks from the from really deep parts of their host body, just throwing these rocks into space where eventually some of them uh, land on Earth. And yeah, just the idea that these things come from a really extreme environment, really deep down on, on the border between, you know, the, the me metallic core and the silicate, uh, mantle it's I mean it, it is one of the only ways to be able to probe that far down and we get it at the you know from the worthy sacrifices of a few uh, young <laughs> planetoids <laughs> I mean everything was being smashed up constantly yeah. at that time I don't I mean, think even you Earth need was. to worry about <laughs> even Earth in fact yes so no they are so beautiful and really really cool um I I totally I totally <laughs> understand why that would be your favorite rock. Um so going from something that's sort of very extreme and rocky to something more biological. What is your favorite fossil? So, um <laughs> do fulgurites count? They're fossilized lightning strikes. It's not biological, but it's it's no less extreme than before. So, fulgurites are what happens when lightning strikes the ground and uh, so what happens is the extreme kind of heat 
uh, produced by the lightning bolt as the electricity flows into um it, it particularly has to be quite um silica rich material like sand or um kind of um sandy mud or something like that but as it goes through it rapidly melts the ground beneath it um in a process called vitrification um and then it rapidly cools because uh, it's, it's surrounded by all this not melted material um and that rapid cooling instead of forming crystals like say uh, a lava when that cools it forms glass um and the way that lightning travels as well in this kind of like spidering pattern you know al almost like a tree um <laughs> and, and it's very similar to uh, what are they called Ligmenstarten patterns i that's probably pronounced horribly wrong um, but it, it's the patterns that like people get when they're struck by lightning, kind of strange spidery scars all over them. Ah, um, yeah. But these these are kind of like three dimensional. Uh, I mean, they they look like lightning bolts. What else is? <laughs> yeah, they do. Um, made out of glass. Um, and yeah, they are. I mean, they're just really cool. They don't preserve much information per se, but I just like the idea that we are seeing where lightning struck. Um, it, it's just a, it's a second in time it's yeah. such a short amount of time and then if like on the isle of aaron you can see these and they're from like hundreds of millions of years ago and that's a single second yeah that exactly happened. <laughs> Insane. It's, it's 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 like a snapshot um yeah it's it's uh, you know the earliest form of photography right <laughs> um i'm continuing my theme of liking the uh the out there <laughs> otherworldly <Yeah>. stuff <laughs> So let's see whether or not this theme continues when we go for your favourite mineral. So um, fluorite um, is a really, it's it's quite a pretty mineral. And, and it's a really, uh, I don't know, um, what what word? It's, it's of, of, of all the minerals, I'm not picking it because of its material properties or like the interesting chemistry behind it. They're just really damn pretty <laughs> yeah they um they have really uh well-defined um crystal habits which means they when when they form large crystals they look just... picturesque and they've got really sharp sides and flat faces just... yeah beautiful yeah. um and well so pure fluorite is colorless but you never really get pure fluorite there's mm -hmm. always going to be impurities in it um, and because it is otherwise colourless, these impurities really show up. They create really vivid colours from, you know, bright purples to dark greens and... Si it, yeah, they, they, they can just be gorgeous minerals. And, I mean, I'm a big fan of purple, and oh, yeah. you can get some gorgeous purple fluorides. <laughs> so, how about this one? Favourite layer of the earth? Okay. Um, I like... Um, it's it's hard to say the the outer core of the earth um to me the the liquid outer core of the earth I think is a really interesting um kind of part you know part of our world um as I mean one it's probably where our magnetic field comes from which is the reason we are all alive today which is Hooray! I think something we should respect it for um <clears throat> but um also I mean to to me it just really intrigues me because it is such a unknowable thing because because we can't drill that far down we can't take samples of it when we get hotspots and magma plumes and whatever it will never sample the 
core, really. It, it's something that is really... There's a there's a bit of a debate about it, yeah. um, whether or not some plumes do sample, like, mm. some mixing in of the, of the outer core, but it's not... Nobody actually really is sure yet. Yeah. Yeah. But in, in any case, it is something that is extremely unknowable yeah. and extremely yeah, alien yeah, yeah. and it's really difficult to model as well because it's a, you know it's it's a fluid that is huge and expansive and there's massive magnetic fields running through it inducing absolutely huge currents like un yeah fathomably massive it, it, it it's like the the engine of our planet right it just feels yeah. so immense and I mean, like science fiction, but it's real. (laughs) So just science, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you couldn't have put it better. Science fiction, but it's real. It's just science. Um, (laughs) So from space to time, what is your favourite geological period? Um, So uh, it's called the Hedean. Which okay. is kind of an informal name. Um, it's not. I I don't think it's really got um, a set official name for that entire expanse of time. But the Hadean is the generally kind of like used term. Um, but it's basically it's the geological period right after Earth was formed. So mm-hmm. it's called the Hadean um, after Hades. Uh, because uh, let's just say it wasn't a pleasant place to live. It was very <laughs> magmatic and fiery and rocky and you know hellish. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, a bit of an underworld. But um, the Hedin is a quite large kind of uh, era. Mm-hmm. Quite long. Yes, quite long. Yeah. <laughs> They're both space measurements. But long I Oh, they are, aren't they? <laughs> long was also, also a time measurement. Yeah, okay. <laughs> large is less frequently a time measurement, although I don't see why it shouldn't be. So yeah. it can be a large <laughs> period if you want. Yeah. So it's quite a long um, era of the Earth. So, yes, yeah, so at the beginning you get this super kind of chaotic and magmatic and fiery world. But also, nearing the end of it, when you start getting Earth's oceans to form... Um, and we even see the beginning of life in Hadean. So to me, the Hadean is just a period where everything is set in motion for the Earth, in which mm-hmm. the world's history is born. So everything we see today was all dis- decided on, I guess, um, then. So yeah, it's just a yeah. really kind of primal uh, part of, uh, Earth's history, and so yeah, it it just yeah that that that's why I love it. It's just the beginning, right? It really makes sense to me that that would be your favorite period <laughs> because everything else you've talked about are things that are sort of very enigmatic, and we have to sort of very fragmentary evidence about. And the Hadean's exactly the same. Like all yeah. of our evidence is like we talked about isotopes um, in the last episode, but it's all sort of like isotopes of like heavier iron and lighter yeah. iron and all different mineral. But it's just it's like we don't have any rocks left from there, so it's kind of like piecing it together, just like oh. everything else you've been talking about. I really see why. And finally, this one, which I feel like you probably have lots of opinions on. Um, <laughs> just what is your favourite non-Earth planet? Well, there's so many to pick from. Um, exactly. I mean, within our solar system. So the fact you've said planet. Um, <laughs> you can't have a star. I, no, no, but like, 
I, I, I would like to talk about Enceladus or Europa, because they're really cool. Or oh. Titan. But they're moons. You want a moon. Um, oh, sorry. So, of the planets, um, my favourite is Jupiter. Okay. Um, this is a amazing planet, right? It's, it's like, it is the epitome of extreme, because right? you've got, I mean, it's, it's a beautiful thing to look at as well. It's got this intense magnetic field, despite not having uh, an iron core like Earth. Um, it's got storms the size of our planet, you know the 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 big red spot that has been yeah you know and and even despite its humongous size it is rotating like several times a day it is a really kind of blistering speed <laughs> given given its size and yeah it 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 just has the limits of extreme being such a big planet with all that mass um at some point uh, when you go far enough in um, there is likely to be a kind of a sea of uh, metallic hydrogen, which is a weird thing I to love say. This. <laughs> because so because hydrogen, of course, we know it as a gas, but it turns out under extreme pressures, um, it will form a kind of it will form a metal. Mm. Um, as in the it will it will form a rigid kind of organized. Um, network of hydrogen molecules um, which can then carry immense currents it's a it's a it's a superconductor and that is probably where um, Jupiter gets its huge magnetic field from instead of uh, like an iron nickel core like we have on yeah. earth mm-hmm. um, is this sea of the the most bizarre material you could ever think of like we, we can we can't even create it in our labs here on earth <laughs> or at least it's presumed we can't. Um, there have been yeah. some. We things... can't at the moment. Yeah, or, or maybe some researchers said they had created metallic hydrogen, oh. but they also said you can't test it because that might destroy our small sample. You know, they had like a few molecules, uh, which is fair yeah. enough that they don't want to destroy it un- until they can find a non-destructive way of testing it. But um, also, but also means we can't yeah. confirm it. <laughs> yeah. Um. But in any in in any case, even if that is metallic hydrogen, it was impossibly difficult to to manufacture. So the fact that there's just vast swathes of this extremely exotic material, you know, hiding beneath the surface of raging storms, it's it is quite uh it, it feels like a fantasy book, right? Yeah. <laughs> it, it, you, it's, you paint yeah. <laughs> you paint it so well, it sounds really <laughs> exciting. Yeah. Fieldwork fails. So, earlier in the show, we heard about Dylan's moment of fieldwork fun. But fieldwork has its oopsie daisies as well as its hoorays. And in this section, we hear about something which might not have gone so well. Dylan, what is your biggest or funniest fieldwork fail? Um, so it's less a failure um, and more of an unfortunate circumstance. But um, in Greece, okay. we had to trek through a path that had been carved out by wild pigs. Um, meaning we had to traverse through really low foliage and brush and really narrow uh, parts as well. Um, that included a non-negligible amount of spiky plants, which like completely perforated my, my waterproofs, um, which was less than ideal, given the torrential rain that was pouring down <laughs> on us. <laughs> so 
I mean, it was it was an absolute nightmare. In the time, it like at the time, I was just sick of it. <laughs> it was a very unsuccessful field day. Yeah, um, I would write. Yeah, but um, I mean, not completely unsuccessful because when the rain did clear up somewhat and the light shone from the heavens and we were at our you know at some of outcrops and on and on the journey back we saw some gorgeous sights i mean it's greece it's a beautiful country in anyway but like yeah that but juxtaposed with the horrible horrible stuff we were experiencing just before it just kind of made yeah. those views feel more worthwhile and something mm-hmm. to appreciate more so it was a fail but it had its upsides <laughs> Yeah, the downs the downs definitely make you appreciate the ups. Yeah. <clears throat> it's interesting. So currently we're two for two, field work fails being days when it rains. <laughs> um, I'm interested to see if anybody who we have on will have a field work fail on a day when the weather was brilliant. <laughs> Fieldwork flights are fancy. If you could carry out geological fieldwork anywhere in the universe, where would you go and why? And the great thing about this is that you don't even have to consider the transit time because I will transport you there instantaneously. Well, I mean, ignoring how much that breaks just all our laws of physics, um, I think think you uh, you could probably guess where I would go. And that is just to the the bounds of, of our knowledge, right? Um, You're gonna go to the edge of the observable universe? Um, well, no, because that's just more universe, right? <laughs> this, is, this is true. Um, that is true, or not? Or, or not? I mean, if it wasn't, then that would be a big discovery in and of itself, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, exactly. Um, I mean, if I could visit an alien planet, um, mm-hmm. that would just be astonishing. Seeing how different it is, how its kind of trajectory. Um, of life differs from Earth, but also what things we've got in common, right? Because it, you know it's still following the same underlying physics as Earth. There's got to be some kind of analogous um, features. Uh, but I think it would just be fascinating to look at all the cool exotic minerals that are forming if it has a different kind of geologic history. Um, you know, we could get if it has different mineral compositions, right? So when you say alien planet, do you mean a planet, like an extraterrestrial planet, or do you mean a planet that has alien life on it specifically? Oh, get there. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, because, I mean, yeah. So if if we look closest to home, um, there's an exoplanet called Proxima Centauri B, um, mm-hmm. which is, uh, so it's, it's about four light years away, um, orbiting, funnily enough, Proxima Centauri. Um, <laughs> and it's th- in it's uh, thought to be around Earth sized, uh, slightly bigger, um, rocky, and in the habitable zone of its star. So, in this area, it could um, feasibly have liquid water on its surface, um, which, judging by our knowledge of how life forms and uh, how it evolves is a critical component um in what's yeah. called abiogenesis or the formation of life from non-life mm-hmm. um yeah, yeah so i mean imagine if we got there if you teleported me there right now 
Um, yeah. And there was life on it. Imagine the flora and fauna we could see and observe. And I mean, it's it's an interesting thought experiment to picture what a totally alien species would look like, right? I will, yes. So I, I saw an artist who sort of brilliant, like, set of, like, imaginings of an entirely alien biology, which I will put a link to on the Facebook. I'll expect you to link it to me after this interview as well. It is amazing. <laughs> but I think also beyond that, just imagining how varied things can be. I mean, look look at our planet, how different things can be. We can go from birds to humans to octopi, right? All things which oh. have, you know, various levels of, I mean, arguably comparable levels of intelligence, right? Yeah. They are remarkably good at problem solving, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, And so, yeah. I mean, it shows us that intelligence can come in wildly different forms. Both, I mean, in terms of mentally and also physically, it can be in different forms, right? Yes. <laughs> it yeah. doesn't have yeah. to be a brain. It can be a disconnected sense of neurons, as in an octopus. Leg um, brains. Yeah, leg brains. Um. And so, it, I mean, it, it is an opportunity for anyone that has a creative mindset to get into the real kind of minutiae of, of biology um, to say, well, what if it looked like this? How would the internals work? How would the mechanics work? How would it, if the gravity yeah. on the planet was more or less, or if it had different biomes and different chemical constituents in its atmosphere, what would it look like and how would it adapt? And so... Being able to study the planet in in all its facets, from its geophysics yeah. to its mineralogy to its biology, I mean, it's just ripe for for yeah, just yeah. just mind blowing discoveries. <laughs> and also, just putting a lot of things about our planet into perspective, like what yeah. things are common to all planets, what is yeah, a, what exactly. is an unusual peculiarity of us, like because yeah. I mean, imagine if we did find life without water present. It, it would completely overturn what we know about yeah. uh, our current assumptions about uh, biology. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I realise that's a very broad answer. It's not a specific, but it, it is just, there's just so it's much. wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been brilliant to have you. It was um, a Really, it was I've fun. enjoyed... I've enjoyed all your word painting. You've made me really excited. Already I love geology, but you've made me really excited about geology again. <laughs> I'm um, glad, I'm glad, I'm glad. I hope I, I, I impart the same to our viewers. Or listeners? Listeners. Yes. It's radio. Listeners. I mean, they can stare at the radio if they want, but they're not going to get <laughs> yeah, very there's much, not much from it. <laughs> Although I have the pictures on the Facebook, right? Well, they have the pictures, exactly. So they can be viewing in <laughs> some way. It's optional viewing, but it's also optional listening, so... <laughs> <laughs> it's all optional! <laughs> Um, right. So before we before we go, I've got a couple of reflection points. Um, so is this what eleven year old you thought they'd be doing? Oh God, no. Um, I mean, when I was eleven, you know, I still wanted to be a Power Ranger, right? Um, <laughs> I mean, I so so I, I've I've had quite a um a love for physics for um, I mean, as as much of my life as I can remember. My dad studied astrophysics at university. And so he's mm-hmm. always kind of um, supplied that sort of wonder and curiosity. Yeah. Um, and so 
at 11, yeah, I, I probably thought it would be, I would be in academia, which, well, I am at the moment. Um, but, I mean, let me know, I'm not actually planning on going into earth sciences as my career. Um, I'm actually planning on doing, uh, on planning to become a maths teacher. Um, which seems a bit out of left field. Um, <laughs> but... I mean... Based on the amount that you're enthusing people on Earth Sciences, I can imagine you would be a brilliant teacher. Aww, thank you. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I don't think 11-year-old me, considering how much he really didn't like school, would have thought that he'd want to spend <laughs> his entire career on one. Um, yeah. And, or you know, or really interested in rocks. Because, you know, nowadays, I look at, like, a real nice granite tabletop or counters top, and mm. I'm like, ooh, 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 look at that feldspar. I can science your table. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? <laughs> 11 year old me would have paid no attention to that. <laughs> yeah. And it is really thanks to the, you know, really broad curriculum that Cambridge offers that I was able to find this really interesting aspect of science that I would otherwise kind of gloss over. Yeah. So what would 11 year old you say if they saw you now? He would say, in a really high-pitched voice, um, <laughs> he, he would say, what the heck, because little me didn't swear, what the heck is so interesting about rocks? And I would have so much to say back. <laughs> and also, Dylan, older me, why are you doing a history module? And I would, I would ask the same thing to present day me. <laughs> I, I, I ask myself that every day. <laughs> but in a way, in a way, geology is just real long term history. I think we should probably almost round up. I have one last question before we end the show, which is: What would you say to anyone out there who isn't sure whether they should sort of like pursue earth sciences more or look more into it? What would you say? So. I th- I think so. From an outside perspective, Earth sciences can look and, and like I, th- this is not meant to be uh, a derision of Earth sciences, but it can look pretty boring. It is just looking at rocks, and also like the primary career prospect for um, a geologist for some of the Earth sciences is in if it's not in academia, it's in um, the oil and gas and mining industries, which aren't you know really that things people want to do in the, in this day and age for understandable reasons um but i think what people fa- fail to see is that that is just one part it is a it is a big part of earth sciences for sure i mean um oil exploration funds a huge amount of uh, geological studies but there is so much beyond that i think by the fact that i've talked this entire time about other planets and cool minerals without even mentioning uh, mining or, or, or oil exploration or or even any of the underlying things like seismology um, and uh, earth imaging. Right? The, the fact that I've talked this long without any of that shows that there is such a wide amount of stuff beyond that and there is something to love for everyone. There's paleontology if you want to study dinosaurs. And who doesn't want to study dinosaurs? <laughs> They're so cool. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, there's uh, mineralogy for people that, you know, at some point in their lives want to look into a volcano and go, huh, isn't that cool, right? <laughs> um, there's people that, you know, if they want to pick up a telescope and look at the moon 
that is a totally valid point of research. There are people that, there are geologists that work with NASA to get stuff onto other planets and back from other planets. I mean, Japan recently just brought back parts of an asteroid, right? Which, that is that is geology, that is earth sciences, right? And yeah. that is, and, and that's making, you know, that's making world news, right? Rightfully yeah. so. Yeah. And yet there is just so much beyond what it looks like on the surface. There is so much interesting stuff. And you get to go to such amazing places. I mean, as part of our field trips, we've gone to, um, I mean, not like the most ex the exotic places, but we've gone to Scotland and we've gone to some really interesting geology in the southwest of England. But we've also gone to Greece. And, uh, well, it was, some people were... Was supposed to go to Spain this year, but of course that's been probably not going to um, go to Spain. Yeah. Uh, of course that's been kind of put on hiatus because of the apocalypse. Um, <laughs> but you know, I, Clarify, I mean, uh, not yeah. the apocalypse. <laughs> as you know, as, as part of people's um, mapping projects, they went to New Caledonia or Canada or the south of France, and you, you get to go to these amazing places. And honestly, the places with the coolest geologies are the coolest places to be, just hands down, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, like, so, you, I mean, you get to explore the world, you get to explore other worlds. There is so much to love, um, no matter what, you know, as, as long as you're into the sciences, there is a part of Earth sciences for you. Yeah. Thank you for putting that so well. And so, with that, that brings us to the end of the actual rock show. Tune in next week for more geological musings. And to play us out, what do we have? The Sky is a Neighbourhood by Foo Fighters. And why have you chosen this song? Uh, so it is... I mean, it, it is a song explicitly about um, space, and I think that is going to be a common theme with me. Um, so that was, I think, um, uh, the kind of lead singer for Foo Fighters, Dave Grohl, wrote that song after watching uh, Cosmos uh, by um, the programme um, with Neil deGrasse Tyson um, and just said, oh, it just made me think real cool stuff's about space, so I wrote a song about it. <laughs> so I think it's a very good song. <laughs> Excellent. Episode two of The Actual Rock Show starred Dylan Caminada. The Actual Rock Show was devised edited and hosted by Hero Bane. Sound effects were taken from the Zapsplat sound effects library. Visit the Actual Rock Show Facebook page for the images accompanying this episode and more information, or go to the CamFM web player to listen again.